in chapter 2. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 2. Well, actually, we'll, we'll start in the end of chapter 1, but then we'll be in, in chapter 2. Um, and I want to pray and start us off. So, will you pray with me? God, I am thankful for the chance to be in Your Word and to be reminded of some big things, some huge things about who we are. And I'm thankful for this text that we're going to look at tonight. I pray that, that we would be able to stay focused on just examining what it means to be made in the image of God. I pray, God, that we would, from it, have a greater, a greater grasp of our identity in You and uh, the dignity in which You've created us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so last week um, we answered this big question, how did we get here? And um, we learned that when we kind of examined the literary context, which is Genesis chapter 1, and we looked at some of the historical background. We looked at some of the ancient Near Eastern people and some of their writing. And, and so based on the words that are used and based on um, what we understand about people that lived 3,500 years ago in Egypt and Mesopotamia, we concluded that when, when we asked the question, how did we get here, we mean something different than when they asked the question. We oftentimes are wanting to know, like, how did the material world get here? Like, how was it formed? And you know, give me the order, and how long, and how long have we been around, and how long did it take, and, and they're not really asking that question, they're not asking the, the how and the when, as much as they're asking the why and the what, they're, they're, their questions typically, and their narratives during that time are focused more on function and purpose, what was the purpose, how, how, did, how did order come about, and so we looked at these things, and, and we realized this is kind of what is happening, this is the, the, the the, um, the painting or the picture of God that the author is doing in Genesis 1, it's this. That in the beginning, God brings order to the cosmos. Um, this God is in control, and He's masterfully guiding the course. He establishes functional existence to the foundation of time, and of weather, and food, and the rhythms that are needed for life to flourish. And then he creates creatures uh, for these environments. And he tells them to fill them. And all that he does is good and is right and has purpose. And then he creates humanity. And so humanity enters into this picture and it's a big moment. Because again, the, this, this is being written to an audience, Israelite people as we talked about several weeks ago, a high-context society that didn't need an explanation or an introduction. or it just They all understood what was happening. They all understood the purpose of this letter. They all understood the language and their situation. And so the author is writing to remind them of who they are and who God is. And so this week our question that we're tackling is, what is our purpose? Um, why are we here? Uh, and, and so you look at ancient Eastern people, and we see that, that when you look at a, a lot of these narratives, to, to kind of summarize 
how they viewed the purpose of humanity, it was basically to serve gods. And so we look at that and we go, okay, that doesn't match up with what, with what we believe is happening in Genesis 1. It stands in contrast to who God is and how He made us. The world, actually, the world in which we live in, has an answer to this question. Um, it is either we're here by chance with no real purpose, or we are the point of it all. We are central. We, we are the point. Church history, actually, um, has tried to answer this question and, and does a pretty good job. Maybe you've heard um, Westminster Shorter Catechism says that uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's a pretty good start. That's pretty good, actually. But what, what does that really mean? And so the answers to those questions, to this question, this big one, is found here in Genesis 1 and 2. So in your Bibles, we're going to be focusing in on it. I've got one key, one thing that I want you to be reminded of as we, as we go, walk through this text. And we're going we're gonna to have to stay at a 50,000 or 20,000 or whatever view of this because there is so much that we could get into. Um, and there are so many rabbit trails that I have been tempted to run down that would just take us further and, and take longer and longer. But here's the key. Here's the one thing I want you to kind of keep in mind. That chron- chronological order okay, is not the priority in Genesis 1 and 2 as much as telling the purpose and function. So that, that will become a little more clear. Um, and, and, and there are, if, if read in a, in a really kind of, I would, I would say an uneducated way of reading Genesis or a quick way or a sloppy way, you could see contradictions in the timeline. But the author's goal isn't to establish and give a perfect timeline. So that's not the point. So we're going to focus on the image of God. Um, so in, in chapter 1, verse 26 is where we're going to pick up. And we're going to spend just a couple verses here and then jump to chapter 2. Chapter 1, 26 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So, some words that we need to define. Um, man, the word man is the word Adam. Um, and so, several things are happening. When, when this word is used, there's no, there's no uh, liter, literary cue to tell us if this is talking about the person Adam or if this is talking about humanity, mankind. As, and so, so as, as you go throughout the scriptures, here's a good question to ask. Is this, is this Adam and Eve as a representative for all humanity? Or is this referring to historical figures, Adam and Eve? And so when, when the translators translate from Hebrew into the ESV or the NIV or whatever, you, you'll see the name capitalized Adam. It appears in, in chapter 2 um, later on. Um, and you'll see that name, but it's, it's literally Adam. And it's the same for here. But they've interpreted, okay, I think they're talking about the person here. And here they're talking about humanity. And so um, that's what you need to know, is Adam and eventually Eve are these archetypal, is the word, representatives for humanity. And they're used throughout, especially once we get in, into the New Testament, they're almost pri- primarily about them representing. The other word we need to talk about is the word image. It's a big word. This is kind of the word we're focusing on tonight. And here's what we see. Uh, an ancient understanding, 
of this word image has with it is always somehow related to kings. So whether it's a, a representative of the king that would go out and have the same authority and rule in the same way, has been given power to go rule in this way. We saw this a little bit with, with Joseph when he was second in command and he was able to go and he's able to make decisions and he's, he's given this power and this authority to represent Pharaoh. Um, so that's, that's part of this. The other, the other thing is um, that this is kind of associated with is kings would often big, build big statues or idols that would kind of signify like this is who's in charge. You know, you, you come into a city and you're struck with this giant statue or this giant idol of the king to represent um, the king and what he stands for. And so that's a little bit of the language that, or that's a little bit of the idea that they would have heard. The other, the, the biblical usage of this, um, when it's not referring to image of God or like us being made in the image of God, is idols, graven images, same, same word, um, that representing the, 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 the deity's essence, if you will. And then, and then we have in chapter 5-3, if you just flip over a page or two, in 5-3, it says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So this is probably one of the most significant uses of this word, aside from the image of God, that we go, okay, that, the author's given us a clue here as to what this word might mean. And in other words, this is significant because it points to the way in which a child um, resembles, but, but not physically, not necessarily physically, but in the way in which this child can grow and mature and act like their parent. So, so here's, well, well, we'll get into this and I'll explain, I'll summarize these things here in just a second. Um, chapter 20, sorry, chapter 1, 27 through 29 says this, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. So, so you see, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So he says this, he's, he's saying everything and all, he's using words to, to, to show that, that this particular creation, this creature, this living creature is different than all the others, having dominion. All of them are told to fill the earth. This one is told to have dominion over all and every. And he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, an observation you may, might make here is that both male and female created in the image of God. So think about that. Is God a male? We often talk about him as a father. We often refer to him as he. Um, in fact, I think it's probably somewhat accurate that the language might refer to him as he. It does refer to him as father. There's actually a couple instances where it refers to him as mother, but it doesn't refer to him as mother, but it uses motherly illustrations to describe God. Um, but it says male and female, he created them in his image. So in some ways, both men, both male and female represent and, and point to um, God. And it says God blessed them which is kind of different, stands out compared to the others. 
other creatures that he, he, he made. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. He says it again. So the author is saying this thing twice. Okay? Very important um, to note that this is a big deal. This idea of, of having dominion and, and ruling and subduing over these things. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is, that is on the face of all the earth and every tree that is with, with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food. And so here we see God blessing them. We see God um, com, com, commending them out, like sending them out essentially, giving them orders, having, giving them a purpose. And then we see Him providing for their needs. So, that is chapter 1. And to kind of summarize, here's what I think you can say are two functions of, of humanity, of, of, of humans being made in God's image. Two functions. To represent Him would be the first one. Um, to bear His essence. To rule and subdue with His authority. To cultivate and create. We'll get into that idea of cultivate here in just a second. Um, and to create like Him. And the second one is to reflect His character. So re, re, um, represent Him, and then reflect His character. And the capacity to be like Him seems to, be, seems to stand out as being a part of having the image of God. Okay, so in chapter 2, verse 4, we have another introductory statement that kind of introduces a section that's coming. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, um, when they were created, in the, day, in, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So, so there's this literary shift. Um, this is not a, oh, let's, let's kind of peer into day six and see what this actually looked like. This is not, chapter two is not a ex- expanding day six to show us what it's like. That's not what's happening here. That's not the way the author seems to be writing. Um, you can kind of think of this more as like a sequel to Chapter 1, more than a, a zooming in on day 6. This is a continual, this is a continuation of um, describing the purpose and the function of humanity. And he uses this word generations, or accounts of, um, the word uh, appears 11 times in, spread out throughout the book of Genesis. This is actually, we might have talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about purpose and structure, but this, this word actually kind of, it's kind of argued that this word is really what drives the book of Genesis. Like, because he, he says, this is the generations of humanity. And then in chapter, I think it's five, it, it talks about the generations of Adam. And then it goes in, it, like every several chapters, it'll kind of introduce, it'll either um, conclude, like that was the generation of, or it'll introduce a new section. All, all throughout the book, 11 different times. And so um, the, the author is kind of bringing focus to what's going to happen over the next three chapters for us. Of course, you know, when it was written, it didn't have chapters. So, 5 and 6. And I'm going to start moving fairly quick here. Um, when, no, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was not a man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So, 
this can be, again, if you're, we're looking for chron chronology here to find out when things are, how is this, when we, we, we can get struck because we know that in day three, a lot of this was created. So the author's point isn't to contradict what he just wrote. The author's point is to emphasize something. What is he emphasizing? Two, th two things, basically, that, that, that he's emphasizing that the world was unproductive and un unable to produce food and that there was no person to till the ground. There was no man to cultivate the ground. So he's describing a need. And then verse 7 comes. And it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, again, we're not, taught, we're not, we're not thinking material. We're thinking functionally. How is this... So what's the point of dust? It's, it's pointing to man's mortality and his brevity. Um, and, and, it, and, and God is establishing a connection, or the author is pointing to a connection that man has to the ground. Okay? Um, he, so we've seen already, already that humankind is connected to God and made in His image, um, male and female. And now we're seeing that, that humankind is connected to the ground from which they're, they're drawn. And we'll see here in a second from which they work and they subdue and they have purpose. So, again, this, this, this account is highlighting humanity's identity and connectivity to everything around them. 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there, was, and there He put the man whom He had formed out of the ground. The Lord God made to spring up every tree um, that is pleasant to the sight, of, uh, sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see here, again, you, you can get confused by focusing on the wrong thing. But God isn't describing the way things came, came about materially. Um, as much as He is creating a setting for which man to live and to work and to function. It's this sacred space, this garden um, language that is... It's a sacred spot in which life can flourish. And so, um, there's, there's lots of things we could talk through. We don't have time to. The tree of life, which we'll get into in chapter 3 um, and, and 4. We'll get into that a little bit more. Um, chapter 3 specifically. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, but I want to keep going. In, chap in verses 10 through 14, he talks about these four rivers. Um, there, it was often common to talk about um, rivers that... that flowed out of temples and um, you know we, we, there's two of these names that we know Tigris and Euphrates, the other two we don't know and in fact their location is still a mystery um, but there's no explanation so again high context society they would have understood what he's talking about they didn't need an explanation um, but the point is maybe pointing to this idea of this garden being this kind of, of Eden being this place where God dwells in this place where um, God is watering the, the four corners of the earth. Okay? And then we get to 15. Um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So, you see this idea. You see God being in control. God taking man and putting him where He wants him. Um, God, God having him work the ground, having him keep the ground, giving him purpose and function, and and uh, there there was talk about this being 
maybe not like gardening as much as um, as much as a priest would 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 work a temple, uh, would cultivate and work a temple. And then verse sixteen, seventeen, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You may surely eat of every fr- tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat." Um, you shall surely die. So this is the first command that, God, that is given, and this command has a promise. Um, you know, the, the other words, the other statements of "be fruitful and multiply" aren't so much a, a command as this one. In 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 the language, it, it doesn't seem to be as strong as it is here. Um, and so he's definitely he's given a promise, and he's given a consequence too. Think about think about what he says to man like that, that that God is in charge he knows what's best and that man is to follow his ways because there are negative consequences to not keeping in in relationship with God to not be to not follow his his commands um, verse 18 then the lord god said it is not good that the man should be alone i will make him a helper fit for him so this is the first time the idea of something not good being introduced, right? So we've seen his creation is good, um, humanity, very good, and then now it is not good. And the not good is being alone. And I think that's pretty interesting. We are made to be in relationship with each other, um, not to do life alone. Now, it's not my job to jump ahead, but I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit because we see this, this idea develop. And when we get to the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians 8, we see Paul says, Paul say, it's better that you probably not marry because marriage will distract you from the Lord, <laughs> distract you from the ministry maybe that God has you. So and that's Paul saying, this is, this is me, Paul, talking, right? Paul was single. So it doesn't seem, once we get there, right, this is early on, um, this is God saying it's not good for man to be alone. Um, but we understand later that maybe he's not just talking about marriage. Like that ultimately we're made to be in relationship. We're made to live in community. And uh, I'll get to the word helper here in just a second. 19, and 20, 19 through 22. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what, what he could call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, there was, not, a, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, it says, verse 21, The Lord um, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he was asleep, took, uh, took, took one of his ribs and closed up its, uh, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord took, um, had taken that He had taken from the man, He He made into a woman, and brought it to the man. So, here's, I, I remember reading this as a kid. I remember my dad explaining this to me, and, and being just like, "Can you imagine Adam? Um, every animal, he's just sitting there in a chair, and every animal just walks up, and he says, chicken, and he keeps walking by, right? And he's, every whatever, um, porcupine. I mean, at some point you run out of names." And and that and that that always baffled me, and I thought that's really cool. That's the point of this. And then you study this, and you go, no, that's not the point of this at all. The, the, the point of this isn't again. Wow, how did he come up with all those names? The point is, 
God recognized it was not good for man to be alone. God had all the animals go before him to help him see, like, none of these, none of these are me. None of these work with me. And so, so then, God sa- then God says, then let me make you. So, he makes him a helper. Now, ladies, I'm not trying to bail you out on this at all. Truth is, though, this is really not the kind of self-servient or subservient type of language at all. Actually, if anything, it's quite the opposite. The word almost exclusively um, outside of here is used to describe how God helps um, His people. So it's, it's used to describe God. So you're in, you're in pretty good company here. But He's, he's highlighting this, this purpose and this function. And, and the idea isn't like, oh, He took a rib. The, um, the language, the word used in Hebrew, we, we translate as rib, most likely isn't referring to a bone. It's, it's referring to a, a chunk of bone and flesh um, out, of her, out of his side. It is, it's more of the idea of side-by-side side thing happening. In fact, one, one, some people think that, that this is describing cutting Adam in half and, and taking half of him and making someone. And so the language is, is a little vague or it's, it's, it's whatever. It's not literal. Um, so, that's that. 23, 25. Let me read through the rest of this. Then man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. and She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now this is why, again, chronology doesn't help here. Because what's a father and a mother up to this point? There it, all, we know is, all we know is man and woman. What's father and mother? In fact, they don't have kids until chapter 4. So, so again, so what is the author doing? The author is highlighting something. Um, lots can be said about this, about this idea of the man's response to the woman, but essentially, he simply, this idea of woman is out of man is what that literally means. Um, verse 24 is, is the verse that is quoted all over the Bible to establish um, marriage, this, this idea of covenant marriage, this idea of a, a context in which a family is born, in which civilizations grow. And so I believe the author is highlighting this relationship and drawing major implications to it. And again, think about the order, think, or think about the, the function that, that God is kind of trying to establish. He's introducing humanity. He's introduce, introducing the roles and the functions in which um, human life thrives. And then he introduces this relationship in which um, more humans can come and, and more life can happen. And then, verse 25, is this bridge verse that helps lead us kind of this bridge to the next narrative that he's about to describe in chapter 3. And, and after all of this, all is right and good and has purpose in the world. They are naked and filled, no shame. You know, I got little kids, and um, if, you know, if you've been around little kids, you know what naked and no shame is like. Like every night when we would do, we'd do bath time, it was like na- naked Olympics, and like running through the house. Like 
Okay, no, you can't. No, you can't do that when you, with your sister when you're naked. So you gotta, you got that's 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 really. But they don't know. You know, they're just running around being crazy. Um, but there's this freedom. There's this no shame. And so again, this narrative bridge is happening to chapter three. So here, here's kind of my summary: the purpose of humanity. It's it's to relate to God. We're made in His image to represent Him, to reflect His character. It's it's to relate to the rest of creation. We've been given a role to rule and subdue with His authority, to cultivate, and then we're to relate to each other. Um, obviously made male and female, different in order to um, exemplify and, and represent God in different ways, and that it's not good for, to be alone, and that we are to be in community. So these are the things He's establishing in this, for, in this second chapter of Genesis. So, um, we're going to take a break. And then Drew's going to get, actually, we're going to get, get some, we're going to interview a couple ladies here at halftime, and then uh, Drew will get back up. So go ahead and take a break. Okay, we'll get going. I'll try. I'll try to be brief. That's not my, uh, it's, it's not how I operate, though. That's not my MO. Um, okay, so Kelsey said something there just uh, at the very beginning of her talk. I don't know if you heard it. She said uh, that several years ago she went through her mid-college crisis. Um, and, and I don't know how many of you guys have got there yet. Um, most people, I can see some of it. I've been in my mid-college. Some of you hit your mid-college crisis in like your last semester of school, which is a bummer, okay? Because um, it's like, oh crap, now, now I don't know what I'm doing and I've already invested three and a half years into not knowing what I'm doing. Um, and then, uh, and some of you guys have hit your mid-college crisis um, in your freshman year and in your sophomore year twice and in your junior year and then in your senior year. And, and you've changed majors over and over again. That's, that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon because what you're doing is you're asking a key question that everyone asks from the, from the moment they're conscious until they die and that people have asked for for all time. And that is... Why am I here? Like, what am I doing here? And you may have actually asked that question out loud when you were sitting in that class that you realized, I hate this class. And this is, I signed up to do this for the rest of my life, and I hate this. Why am I here? Right? Um, everybody, I say everybody, a lot of people know that story. And here's the thing. It's called, you know, the original term is not mid-college crisis. The original term is what? Mid-life crisis. Because there are a lot of people who get all the way into their 40s and 50s and then go, what am I doing with my life? Why am I here? That is the foundational question of, of philosophy and humanity. What on earth are we here for? What? Well, what are we doing here and why do we exist? And so this is the key question that everyone asks and, and the answer comes in the first two chapters of Genesis. Your whole answer to that question comes from this because um, we answer that question, why do you exist, what is your purpose, the same way you answer that question for anything else, whether that thing is alive or not, Okay? You answer that question, what is it here for, by looking at how it was designed. That's how you know what the purpose of something is. 
So I look at this thing in my hand and just by looking at its design, I know a few things about it. I can start to determine its purpose just by observing things. So there's a glass screen on the front of this, which means I know like this isn't good for like hammering nails in, right? I know that this isn't good for like um, swinging at baseballs with, right? Because there's a screen here. There's, there's a speaker in here where I can hear there's a microphone for me to talk into that tells me that this is meant for communication in some way. When I, if I had the ability and could open it up and look at the circuitry and start to observe that desi the design in there, then I'd get really, really um, incredible clues about what this is for. You know what something is for by looking at the way it's designed. And the same thing is true for you. The same thing is true for humanity as a whole. We know what we're to do, what our purpose is. We know why we're here when we look at the way we're designed. And, and so... That question needs to be answered by what's the story? What is the story that tells you what your design is? Because when you know that, then you're going to know what your purpose is. And so I want to take a look, and, and Scott mentioned these things briefly, but I want to take a look at three different stories about our design and how they come to be. And the first is the stories that were being told in the ancient Near East at the time Genesis was written. The story that all of Israel's neighbors were, were hearing and telling their children and their grandchildren about how they were designed and how they came to be. So the ancient Near East, or Mesopotamia, I want to talk about the modern story and how it came to be, and then I want to talk about the biblical story for design and where those things come into play. So there are uh, a number of different, actually, Mesopotamian myths or ancient Near Eastern myths about uh, the design of human beings, just like Jim told you several different stories about creation, uh, how, how creation came to be. And one of the most common ones is the Enuma Elish, which is that Babylonian story with the, with the god who goes and kills that like dragon goddess and then rips her in half and creates the sky and the, and the earth and all that stuff from it. So we heard about that, that same story, that same epic, along with several others from Mesopotamia at, this, at the time, uh, tell slightly different versions of the same thing, and that is this, that the younger gods uh, who, who reigned kind of over everything, the younger gods who were under these old ones, the younger ones got tired of their work. They got tired of having to do things for the older gods all the time, and, and to take care of their needs and all those things, and so they decided to rebel against the older gods. And then someone got the idea, hey, what if we could create some kind of creature who would come and do all the work for us? Who would come and do all the things that we don't want to do? And so what they did is they killed one of the lesser gods, slit that god's throat, um, let the blood spill out, and then they mixed that blood in with the clay, and out of that they created human beings. In some of the stories, they created seven males and seven females, but, but however the details arrange, it's from the blood of a lesser god, and the clay of the earth is how they created men uh, and women into that place. And so they, they do this, and, and it, at first this is kind of a great idea, hey, these, these creatures here, now we've got them, they can do our bidding, they can do the stuff that we don't want to do, this works out great. But then as the story goes on, we find these gods getting annoyed with human beings as there becomes more and more of them on the earth. Um, so much so that they begin to send plagues and pestilence just to wipe the people out because they're tired of them already. And this was the story that all of Israel's neighbors told their children about how they came to be, about why they were here on this earth. So the design 
uh, of human beings is they were designed basically to do what the gods didn't want to do. That's why you're here. To do the things that the gods didn't want to do. And that means that their purpose is basically to meet the gods' needs to, if possible, because this is really important, those gods have needs. They need to be housed. That's why we build temples. They need to be fed. That's why we make sacrifices. They need you to go out and take care of agriculture and farming because the agriculture of a city, of a town, takes care of the temple economy to keep this whole thing running for the gods. And since they have needs, if you can play your cards right, you might be able to use the things you have and manipulate the gods into getting what you want. But other than that, you stay out of their way. That's why you're here. To do the slave labor that the gods don't want to do, and then to stay out of their way as much as possible. This is the story of the ancient Near East, and that's how they came to understand their purpose. The modern West tells a different story, the, the culture that we live in today. Um, the prominent story about how you came to be and how you were designed is that essentially we are um, evolved apes. Essentially primates who made it to the top of the evolutionary ladder is what we are, which means this, that there is no design. You weren't created with anything in mind. You weren't brought into being um, with any particular uh, choosing or any particular, yeah, any particular decisions or choices or because of any significant need or anything like that. You were simply the product of uh, one random mutation after another over millions of years. And because there is no design, uh, there is no purpose. There is no purpose. There is no answer to the question why are we here? The answer to the question, why are you here? You just are. There is no reason why you're here. Nothing caused you to be here. Random chance is what exists here. Of course, the, the issue is no one actually lives this way. There is no more inconsistent worldview on the planet than Darwinian naturalism. No one who says they believe this actually lives in accordance with this. You can't do that. Um, for um, bigger reasons that had to do with human dignity. And then for other reasons like this, no one can live without purpose. No one will actually believe what this story tells them, that you don't have a purpose, that you don't have a design, that you don't have anything to live for. There is something inside of every human being that says, no, no, there's got to be something. There's got to be something that I'm supposed to be doing. There's got to be something that I'm supposed to be chasing. And so, human beings, even when they believe this, find themselves chasing after other things. And since there is no real purpose, since nothing is actually given to them, what that purpose essentially ends up being is, do whatever I can do to make me happy. Whatever I can do to make me feel alive, whatever I can do to make me feel some sort of pleasure, if it's money, get as much money as I can. 
If it's sex, get as much sex as I can. Use people as much as I can. If it's uh, success, if it's relationships, if it's a physical high, do whatever you can to get as much of that as you can. Uh, John Walton, who we're using a lot, Old Testament scholar out of Wheaton, um, talked a lot about Genesis. He has this amazing uh, statement where he says, actually, what the modern Western worldview leads to is, is treating people as though they're nothing, and gods at the same time. You're nothing because all you are is the highest person on the evolutionary ladder, or the highest primate on the evolutionary ladder. And yet, practically speaking, we act like the universe exists to meet our every need and our every want. And so human beings are both nothing and they act as though they're gods, as though everything is here for them. We joke about things like first world problems, right? Um, what first world problems are is the result of people having nothing to run after except for their own pleasure. And when we cannot have everything we want, right when we want it, it annoys us or frustrates us. Hashtag first world problems. Right? That's what this is. And that's what this story of our design has led us to. Even though it cannot be followed to the T, this is what it brings us to. And so then you have... The, the biblical answer to both of these questions, which takes place right in the middle of this world, right in the middle of all these stories that are taking place, and yet it still speaks to our context today, directly to what, we, to what we have. And so it says this, our design is that we are in the image of God. Now, Scott touched on this, but I want to unpack some of the implications of this just a little bit more. He said, actually, this word image, biblically and in the Mesopotamian era, area, was used um, primarily about three different things to, to say that somebody was made in the image. It was, it was talked about in three different ways. First was idols. Um, graven images, you may have heard, or golden images or whatever. Um, it was used to talk about idols. It was used to talk about how sons are in the image of their father, or maybe a daughter in the image of their mom, or something like that. Um, and then it was used to talk about kings who had set up an image of themselves in like a country that they were establishing their authority over. So I go take over this country. How does that country know who their king is? How do they know who's, uh, who's in charge there? I set up an image of myself. And now they can look and they can see. So these are the three primary ways that it was used. But, but unpack that a little bit. Think through the implications of those. What is an idol? When they talked about an image of the gods, what were they talking about? What was an idol to them? Now, kind of the, the basic rudimentary understanding of idolatry is, and this is what I grew up believing, that they thought that the idol was the god. So this was their god. And they worshipped that thing. And, and that was what their whole religion was based around. And I just thought, that's so dumb. Why would, you, why would you believe that this little thing you made was the God? That's not what they believed. They believed that this physical object here was the physical representation of the God. Was, was not exactly, doesn't mean it looked just like what the God looked like. Doesn't mean it could do everything that the God could do. But that it was the representation of that God. And they believed this, that in some sense, a bit of the divine essence. So you have uh, the, the storm God Baal, or Baal as we call him. Baal, and you'd set up an idol of Baal. And that little idol there has some of the divine essence of Baal in it. 
right? And so, and, and Baal some sort of even accomplishes his work through that idol in some means, all right? Now think about the implications of that for when we go and we say that same word or when Genesis goes and says that same word about you. That you are not God, that you cannot do what God does, that you are not who He is, but you are the physical representation of Him on earth. And that in some sense, there is the divine essence of you or of God within you. There is something, there is something, um, so a a person back in, say, Babylonia or in, uh, in Moab would walk into a temple of their gods and they would see these images of the gods and they would know when they walked up to that temple, this is a sacred space. Okay? Genesis tells you you could walk into your neighbor's house and go, this is a sacred space because the image of the god is in here. Because some bit of the divine essence is in this person right in front of me. Uh, or, or think about that, that, that usage where we would say that a son is like its father, like in Genesis 5 where Seth is in the image of Adam. Think about the implications of that. Because what happens, I, I was born uh, at, when I was an infant, and when I was a little kid, people already said that I looked like my dad. Okay? Even, even, when I was, even when I was two or three, people could already see it. But now, actually, I'll like walk in. I, this summer, I walked into this building, um, uh, into the building of a lady who hadn't seen either my dad or me for like 10 years, and she thought at first that I was my dad. And the reason why is because when that little baby grows up, it has the potential to become more and more like the image of its father, to reflect it more and more. And so uh, to say that you're in the image of your father is to say that just like a child has within it this, this, it looks like its father, but it has actually the potential, the capacity to, if it grows up, look more and more like him. And that's you. You have the capacity within you to grow in such a way that you reflect the image of your father more and more as you go. But the more and more people see you, the more and more they see God within you. And then this third thing, that a king sets up an image of himself, that's what Genesis is saying, that God sets up his images all over the earth, and then he says, be fruitful and multiply, so that everywhere humanity goes, people ought to see God, and they ought to know this is who rules and reigns over this earth. His image is here to remind me. His image is here to display that to me. And so, if this is our design, then our purpose, and Scott touched on it, is to reflect God's glory. I'm going to use this word, represent. So when we say in the likeness of God, it's important to to state this. We're not talking about, like again, His physical look, because we don't believe God is like physical. He's spirit. What we're talking about is representing His character. And, and to some degree his nature, his love, his justice, his faithfulness, his holiness. That's why you're here, to reflect those things. And then the other thing comes um, under this idea of a king setting up an image of himself. And even Genesis 1, 26 through 28 there says it. He says he made them in his image and then he says, Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing on the earth. And so that is this idea that we are actually meant to partner with God in governing over creation. Uh, I'm going to use this word rule. 
that we're actually designed to rule over creation, to care for it in the same way that God does. This is really fascinating because what you see in the opening uh, chapter there of Genesis, Genesis 1, Scott talked about it. Um, you have God taking the chaos of the waters and, and forming beauty and order out of the chaos. And then you have the, at the end of Genesis 1 and at the beginning of Genesis 2, God going to uh, man and woman and saying, and now you get to do it too. Now I want you to take the creation that I've made and I want you to bring order and beauty and cultivation to what is there. I'm inviting you into this with me to partner alongside of me in governing over the earth on my behalf and caring for those things. So how is this different from this thing where the ancient Near Eastern gods created human beings to go work in the earth and in Genesis it says that God created man and put him in the garden to work. How are those two things different? Because that sounds similar. The primary difference is this. Here it's happening to meet the God's needs. And in the biblical uh, story, God has no needs. Yahweh, as ultimate reality, there is nothing that He needs. He didn't make you so that you could do the things He didn't want to do. He didn't make you so you could feed Him. He didn't make you so you could house Him. He has nothing that He needs for you, from you, and yet He invites you into this partnership anyway. Invites you to be a part of this, wants you to be a part of this. So, my son uh, Hudson, who's eight years old, has recently grown, like in the last couple months, he's grown fascinated with the idea of weed eating, like taking an edger and running around. So, he'll see me like mowing and then he'll see me weeding, and he's gotten really kind of fascinated. So, he started asking questions and finally kind of asked me, Could I, can I, he doesn't say weed eating, he says weed. Could I weed, Dad? Um, <laughs> could, I, could I go do some go do some weeding, um, and so, and I'm like, and so I, I, you know, I kind of thought about it for a little bit, and I was like, this is going to be a disaster, um, but I decided, I'm, yeah, man, you can do this, and so the last couple times we mowed, I've actually let him take the weed eater out there and start going along and, and doing this stuff, and he's gotten like so into this, and so like, uh, proud of this it's even like he's like turned into like an old man you know how like your dad's always talking about the lawn and and like standing on the porch and like observing it oh man the lawn looks like it needs to, to mow you know or looks like i need to get out there with the edger he's saying those kinds of things like we'll pull up into the driveway and he's like man looks like i need to weed the lawn again um and so he's like he's super excited about this and loves this now why do i have hudson do that is it so he can take care of this problem for me so I don't have to do it anymore? No, he doesn't take care of the problem. The truth is he's terrible at it, all right? <laughs> and the truth is it takes me longer because I have to go kind of walk alongside him and help him and show him, and then I have to go back and just do it all over again after him because of all the stuff he misses. He's terrible at it. No, I, I don't do that so that he can do the things I don't want to do. I do that because there's a joy in getting to work alongside my son. I do that because I, I like to see him work to do things to help take care of our house. And I like to do that with him. And, and that's the picture of what God invites you into. He doesn't need that. He could do it better than you. But he invites you into this to care for and cultivate what you see around you. And there are a lot of implications for your major, by the way, that if you understood that might keep you from a mid-college crisis. 
might keep you from having to feel like you've got to switch all the time. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong to switch. I'm not saying if you switch majors, you don't understand the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying that that thing that you're doing that you feel pointless may not be as pointless as you think. But there's also a lot of implications for how you cultivate humanity around you by the family you might make or by the friendships you might form. And, and we don't even have time to talk about that tonight. We're going to have that image of God part two in, in just a, a little bit. Um, but let me, let me kind of wrap up with this idea. Um, I want to answer one more question. If this is the purpose to represent and rule, how do you know if you're doing that well? No, 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 better not how do you know. How can you do that well? How does the person do that in the right way? If we're meant to glorify God, and we glorify God by representing and ruling, how do you do that the way you're supposed to? And that is, I think, this third word. It it never gets mentioned in Genesis 1, but it's implied there, and then it's explicit throughout all of Scripture. And the only way you will ever represent God well, and the only way you will ever rule alongside Him and on His behalf well is if, you are in, um, is if you are in relationship with God. That word encompasses these two. How in the world can you ever represent and reflect the character of a God that you don't know? How in the world can you ever rule alongside, partner with God in caring for this earth and cultivating it when you don't know the God who designed it? When you don't know the way in which He meant for it all to work? When you don't know those things, you need this unlike, and so that's why relationship becomes so important. Unlike in this story where the gods just made you so you can take care of their problems, but they don't want anything to do with you. And unlike this version of the design in which you were just kind of by chance brought into a cold, lifeless universe to do whatever, anything, this is a story in which God actually um, invites you to know Him invites you into a relationship with Him. And through that relationship, you are able to live out your purpose. You are able to reflect God. You are able to represent Him to rule on His behalf. Um, Every problem in this world, everything you see that is wrong in you, and everything you see that is wrong in your family, and everything you see that is wrong when you watch the news, is a result of a severing of the relationship with God through sin that then keeps us from representing as we ought to and keeps us from ruling as we ought to. It is a severing of that relationship that then distorts the image of God in every human being. It's still there. You still have that inherent value and dignity. But there is something that is off about it from there on out. And it is all traced to sin, which we'll talk about next week, that severs the relationship between God. Um, And this is a little bit of what Genesis is about. We told you at the beginning, Genesis is the story of God establishing a covenant people. That's what Genesis is. And we also told you this. The purpose of that covenant is to reveal himself to the world. That's why he did it. That's the purpose of Genesis, is that the world might know him again, so that they could come into relationship with him again, and things might be made right. That's what we're going to be talking about through the rest of the semester. That's what we're going to actually be talking about specifically over the next couple weeks. What it looks like when this is broken up, and then how this comes back together. Um, Let me say this, I need to wrap up, but if there's any of this that strikes a chord in you, 
if there is anything in you that goes, I have no idea what you're talking about when you, mean, when you say a relationship with the God in heaven. Or, I, I can't understand why anyone would ever want a relationship with God in heaven and what that would look like. Or if there's something in you that asks this question, what happens if the image of God is too far gone in me? What happens if humanity, or specifically myself, gets to a point where the image is broken beyond repair, seemingly? When it seems like it's not possible to represent as I'm supposed to. When it seems like it's not possible to cultivate and care for rule over creation alongside of him like I was supposed to. What do I do in that situation? Um, If any of that hits you, if you've got that question in your mind, come talk to somebody tonight and we would love to talk. We'll give you the spoiler for the next couple weeks um, and tell you all about it. Uh, For now, there are four places you can go tonight. Okay, You can go over here to this corner and talk with Scott in London. If you are interested, if you feel like maybe God is calling you to help support um, her work over in Spain there. Um, You can come right here if you're interested. You're not signing your name in blood. This is no major, but if you're interested in maybe being a part of this dream team of ours going to Spain next year, and you just want information and you want to talk about it, come talk to me here. You can come talk right here if you want to buy one of these bracelets and begin praying for in vivo, praying for Spain and and helping to send Rachel and Kelsey over there. And then lastly, we still need some of you to throw glowy stuff on people at night when they're racing through the park next weekend. And you can go talk to Katie right there. Please, if some of you will take care of that, that would help us out a lot. Anything else, Scott or Rachel? All right, we're done.